Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 13. We are returning to our study of the book of Acts. We took five weeks to look at the subject of fellowship in light of the relaunching of our small group ministry, which kicked off this past week. But this morning, we are going to read Acts 13, verse 13 through 41. Let's read God's word together. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And without lifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who would do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up from him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Let's pray and seek the Lord's help. Lord, we we want to believe. We don't want to fulfill that verse that in the midst of an unimaginable work that we would be lacking in faith. So, Lord, This morning, as you speak to us, Lord, may we respond to you with trust, with obedience, and with hope. Lord, do this among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a book that recently caused a stir in Christian circles and the media was titled Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth by Reza Aslan. By the way, that's not the lion from the Chronicles of Narnia for you C.S. Lewis fans. This is, this is a different God. But in his book, Aslan presents a portrait of Jesus as a nationalistic revolutionary who attempted to oust the Romans from Palestine and set himself up as a temporal king. And he ended up getting crucified in the process because of his beliefs and because he posed a threat to Rome. Of course, this is not the Jesus of the New Testament. This is an unfortunate attempt to ignore the documents from the first century that actually tell us about Jesus' life and mission in order to find some secret historical reconstruction. Now, Aslan's book is just rehashing arguments that were refuted over a century ago. But imagine if he were correct. Would that matter to you? Would that make a difference? If Aslan's portrait of Jesus were true, what would that change about your day tomorrow? Think of it like this. Does it matter to you that Jesus has done something in history? Not just that he represents some ideas about love or acceptance or peace that you'd like to follow, but that something happened in space and in time 2,000 years ago. What difference does it make to you right now that God has intruded history in the person of Christ? And how does that affect your joy, your sense of purpose in life, your hope for today? Well, here in Acts 13, Paul and his companions traveled north about a hundred miles from Paphos, and they arrive at Antioch and Pisidia. And along the way, John, is also known as John Mark, leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. And this is going to become a point of contention between Paul and Barnabas later in the book. And so Luke mentions it here. But, but they visit a synagogue on the Sabbath. And a synagogue service would typically consist of a of a reading from the law and the prophets, followed by an opportunity for the men who were present to encourage those who were in attendance. And so Paul stands up, 
And here we are given his first recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And in his sermon, Paul introduces us to the Jesus of history. But he takes us much further back than the first century. We're told of three things here. That Jesus fulfills the goal of history. Verse 16 through 25. Jesus transforms the expectations of history. Verse 26 through 37. And Jesus replaces your personal history. Verse 38 through 39. So first, Jesus fulfills the goal of history. Paul begins by telling the Israelites their story. He reminds them of their history. And what you have here is basically a summary of the entire Old Testament. In nine verses, he rehearses over 1,500 years. And the way that he describes it is striking. He presents this as the story of God acting in history. In the the text here, there are 12 main verbs with God as the subject. It's inescapable as you read through the passage. God chose the people of Israel among the nations. God made them great during their stay in Egypt. God led them out of bondage of slavery with a mighty arm. God put up with them patiently in the wilderness. God delivered them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. God gave them judges to govern and save the people from their enemies. God raised up Saul as king. And when he failed, God removed him. And God established David on the throne forever. And God has brought a savior to Israel. Testified by John the Baptist as the one who was promised long ago. And so Paul goes through every period of Israel's history. From the patriarchs to the exodus to the conquest to the judges to the kingdom. And down to the final Old Testament prophet. And each step of the way he makes God the primary agent. God has done this. God is sovereign over all that occurs. He is the Lord of time and space. In the theater of history, God God is not sitting in the audience observing the play. No, He is in the director's chair. That's true today. It's true in the United States. It's true in Egypt. It's true in Syria. The events that happen among nations and peoples are not accidental or merely the natural outworking of power and politics. They are intentional. They are designed. They are purposed. And so the Christian is to be neither cynical nor superficial when it comes to history. We need to see things from God's perspective, not Fox News or MSNBC. History is God's story. And Paul's point here is that from the beginning, God has been advancing a singular purpose. He has been pushing it forward, shoving it toward his goal. What Paul describes in Ephesians 1.10 is God's plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ. That's what the entire Bible Is about. The Bible's not just a collection of cute ideas to put on a Hallmark card or nice inspirational coffee mug verses to get you through the day. 
It's not just a bunch of uh, devotional thoughts for you to email out to all your friends with the qualification that unless they forward it to every person they know, they somehow let down Jesus. When we treat the scriptures this way, what we've done is we've made them about us. In his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton talks about the, the gospel of me that has created a problem of biblical illiteracy in the church, particularly among young people. He writes... It doesn't really matter any longer whether one has been raised in an evangelical family and church. Understanding the basic plot of the biblical drama and its lead character is as unlikely for churched as for unchurched young people. God and Jesus are still important, but more as part of the supporting cast in our own show. Don't treat the Bible that way. The Bible addresses our needs. It speaks to every aspect of our lives. It calls us to personal faith, but it is not about us. It's not just supplying the supporting cast in our own show. And it's not just a collection of moral stories to teach our children to stay out of trouble, lest they get eaten by Goliath or one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Edmund Clowney notes this. He says... Anyone who has had Bible stories read to him as a child knows that there are great stories in the Bible. But it's possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. So when you read the Bible, don't miss the point of Scripture. It's very easy to miss the point. In the movie Harvey, the character Elwood Dowd is played by Jimmy Stewart. He says, I was walking down the street the other day and... I heard somebody say, good evening, Mr. Dowd. And I, I turned and I saw a giant white rabbit leaning against a lamppost. But I didn't think much of it because when you've lived in a town as long as I've lived in this one, you, you get used to people knowing your name. Obviously, he's missed the point. Dude, there is a giant white rabbit talking to you. Don't you think that's strange? Well, there's someone who stands out on every page of Scripture. It's not a giant white rabbit. Paul gives us who it is here. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus, as he promised. He's the main character of scripture. And every verse is either an anticipation of his work or an explanation of all that it implies. It's the habit of the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers to interpret the Old Testament through a Christological lens. You know, right now in uh, the youth group, we're in a series uh, titled Gospel Glass. It's a playoff of the product Google Glass. If you're familiar with that, it's going to be released in January. But in the same way that Google wants to take over every aspect of your life, uh, the gospel is to be the lens through which we approach life. But but the New Testament reads the Old Testament through gospel glasses. Notice the way that it talks about Jesus as fulfilling everything Scripture is about. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, when Jesus encounters the disciples on the Emmaus Road, says, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then verse 44, he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. All right? What does it look like to understand the scriptures? He says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Now the third day rise from the dead that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus is the topic of scripture. It's all about his person and work. In the Bible, all roads lead to Jesus. The book of Hebrews calls the old covenant a shadow of the things that are to come. It's like the glory of Jesus and its brightness has cast a shadow down Old Testament history for it to be traced back to him. This is the storyline of the Bible. Ever since the fall, God has been on the redemptive move. From the moment of man's first failure, he set salvation in motion. And every act of mercy... Every expression of his patience, every display of his kindness to his people gestured in the direction of the cross of Christ. God finds Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, covering their shame with fig leaves, and he clothes them with the skin of sacrifice. He promises that the bruised heel of the woman's seed will crush the head of the snake. He bars access to the tree of life so that they won't be permanently left in their fallen condition. By the way, if you've been attending Peter's class at School of the Word on Sunday mornings, you've got a much better appreciation of this, don't you? Later in the book of Genesis, God finds a man named Abram bowing down to his tribal deities. And out of sheer mercy, he adopts him as his own and promises to make him a great nation. He declares... That through him, that is through his seed, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Abraham's descendants grow to be as numerable as the stars in the sky, even while they are slaves in Egypt. And God raises up a mumbler named Moses, rescued from the reeds to redeem his people from bondage. He establishes his covenant at Sinai, constitutes Israel as a nation. He clears out the land of Canaan as their dwelling, and he gives them David as their everlasting king. But despite God's abundant mercy, the history of Israel is marked by idolatry and unfaithfulness of every sort, causing God to send them packing into Babylonian exile for 70 years. But he brings them back to the land where they wait with anticipation until Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, the woman's seed comes and he makes everything right. And one day God will restore all of creation as the place of his presence. This is the message of scripture. It's what it's all about. 
Now, I've heard it said that you could summarize the Bible as kill the dragon and get the girl. And that's what Jesus does. He defeats the enemy and he rescues his bride. It's the greatest story ever told. A true fairy tale. And so in his person and work, Jesus fulfills the goal of all history. He also transforms the expectations of history. And that's what we see next. You know, this year our young married couples have been discussing the book, What Did You Expect? by Paul David Tripp. It's a helpful book about the realities of marriage. And maybe that's something you've encountered in your own marriage. Or you thought, uh, I didn't expect that she would be like this. Or that he would have these issues. Well, we might say that about Jesus and the Jewish people, that he was not the Messiah they were expecting. They expected somebody who looked more like Reza Aslan's zealot, someone who would crown himself king and spank the Romans in the process. Instead, they found a carpenter from Nazareth who dined with tax collectors and received foot washings from disreputable women. But Jesus is beyond our expectations. In fact, he transforms the expectations of history by his death and resurrection. There is so much puzzle and promise to this person. So Paul brings attention to his crucifixion. Verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem, their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. So Paul is standing in a synagogue on the Sabbath, After the law and the prophets have been read and he is indicting the Jewish people for their failure to recognize their own Messiah who is spoken of in the very scriptures they read week after week. They did not recognize him or understand, he says. And so they killed him. He did not conform to their expectations or their invented religious traditions. And so they condemned him, even though they found no guilt in him. There's a novel called Man Alive by G.K. Chesterton, and it's about a character named Innocent Smith. And Innocent Smith shows up at a boarding house after sending this strange telegram to one of his old school friends that read, Man Found Alive with Two Legs. And he shows up at the house in kind of a Mary Poppins-like fashion. He creates a stir with his childlike antics and even promises to run off and elope with one of the women there. But then a criminologist and a psychiatrist show up with the news that Smith is actually a crazy man who is wanted on charges of theft, desertion, polygamy, and attempted murder. And so they, they put him on trial. And as the trial proceeds and the evidence is considered, it turns out that Innocent Smith is, in fact, innocent. He enters houses through chimneys and windows. 
but they're always his own home. He shoots at pessimistic college professors intentionally missing in order to help them to see the value of their own life. He's had many marriage ceremonies and love affairs, but with only one woman. He leaves home, travels around the world in order to return home as his destination. He keeps the commandments, but breaks all the conventions. And Chesterton's point here is that here is someone so different and so alive to the wonder of the world that they think he's insane and arrest him. But he's the sanest person who's ever lived. He's not what they expected. And for some reason, they think that he was wrong for it. And so Jesus, as John 1.11 says, he came to his own world. And his own people did not receive him. And yet, this too was in fulfillment to Scripture. Paul says that in crucifying Christ, they, verse 29, carried out all that was written of him. Well, what was written of him? Perhaps Paul has in mind prophecies such as Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. and For my clothing they cast lots. Sounds familiar? Isaiah 50, the Lord has given an open ear. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's written of him hundreds of years before his birth. And yet here's the irony of this. Because Paul says that it is precisely because they did not understand the prophecies that they fulfilled them. This is the conundrum of the cross. It's what he says in 1 Corinthians 2 eight that if they had known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't know. God hid it from them. And so, in the wickedness of their own hearts, from their own evil motives, they were accomplishing exactly what God had intended. Peter makes this explicit earlier in the book of Acts when he says that the leaders of the Israelites and the Gentiles conspired together against Jesus, but that they were were carrying out whatever God's hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And so Herod and Pontius Pilate enter at stage left with their own sinful intentions, and yet they are right on cue. The greatest atrocity in the drama of history was perfectly planned. So blow through your expectations. John Calvin writes, 
Not only is God powerful enough to do what he has promised, but those who try to thwart him only succeed in reinforcing what he wants against their will. There's no God like this God. How can the truth of God fail and even its greatest enemies are forced to fulfill it? Do you believe in a God who does stuff like this? Who is sovereign over everything, who is in complete control over all that takes place, including the darkness and tension of evil and death, who's not hindered by our sin, but able to work it for his purposes in surprising and unexpected ways. And do you believe that is the God who is in charge of your life? Over your past regrets, your present anxieties, and your unknown future. Jesus transforms the expectations of history. He is the humble king riding on the foal of a donkey. He's the paradoxically crucified Messiah. Surprising of all, Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that to set you free. But it's not only the death of Jesus that messes with our assumptions. His resurrection is beyond what we could have ever imagined or anticipated. And that's where Paul goes next. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are now His witnesses to the people. Paul mentions living eyewitnesses to the event of the resurrection. People, Paul was among them who had seen the risen Jesus with their own eyes. He said, you can go talk to them. You can have a conversation with them over coffee in the marketplace. By the way, there's a very fascinating book titled Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Balcom. And he argues that the characters who are named in the Gospels, such as Jairus or Bartimaeus or Simon of Cyrene, that they're mentioned by name because they are being offered as eyewitnesses to the events. So the Gospel writer is saying, hey, these people are still alive. You can go talk to them. They'll corroborate my story. Yeah. That's true the resurrection as well. What Paul claims in 1 Corinthians 15 was witnessed by over 500 people. This again roots the work of Jesus in history. The resurrection was not just some comforting concept that the teachings of Jesus live on in his followers. It was not a symbol or metaphor. It was utterly concrete. It was about an empty tomb. A body that was lifeless. Until the giver of life himself returned to take up a residence there. His disciples touched his scars. Since a ghost has neither flesh nor bone. Anything less than a physical Jesus with a renewed body stepping out of the grave. And we are still dead in our sins. So Paul quotes Psalms 2 and 16. Promises that were originally given to David. But speak of realities much greater than David ever experienced. Look at verse 35. Therefore he says in another psalm. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So the promise reaches for someone greater than David. And there it finds Jesus. Ever since the fall, the story of humanity knew only of corruption. Corrupt government, certainly, as some of you are too quick to point out. But corrupt hearts. Corrupt bodies. Death and decay. The curse smothering our existence. Squeezing the breath out of life. In staff meeting on Tuesday, we were talking about City Park and Peter mentioned how remarkable it looks now considering how it looked right after Katrina. And you, you guys remember how everything looked after Katrina, right? Everything was brown and dead and had this rotten dust that would cause you to cough up your appendix. That's what the curse looks like. That's corruption. And death reigns the day. And we feel it in our own lives. If you need supporting evidence, just sign up to receive the prayer chain. Here are some of the things that were mentioned on the email list this week. Father who has died, leaving behind a widow and grieving daughters. An automobile driven into a house in an attempt to kill both driver and passenger. A parasite that has taken over the eye and threatens to enter the brain. This is corruption. But here, Paul presents a man who will never again see corruption. And we in him. The resurrection is the great reversal of history. It stems the tide of death. The current stops at the tomb of Jesus on Easter morning. And like the walls of the divided Red Sea, it is commanded to go no further. So Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm throwing my mic off my ear. It's good news. He taunts death. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Frederick Beekner writes in his novel, Godric, he says, All of the death that ever was, when set next to life, would scarcely fill a cup. And that life is the resurrection life of Jesus, which is for us. This Jesus does the utterly unexpected. He amazes and astounds me. Is he riveting to you? Does he astonish you? Or is he familiar? That's the story of Jesus, which is really the story of the world. The question is, how does your story fit into this story? And that's how this text concludes. The Jesus of history replaces your 
personal history. Paul ends his sermon with an appeal. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The Greek text here is emphatic in its reference to Jesus. It's like it puts him in bold print. It says, by this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. And Paul changes his pronoun from the first to the second person. He says, it's proclaimed to you. He's offering Jesus to them directly. He's appealing for a response. He's saying, won't you embrace him? Won't you receive this forgiveness? It reminds me of a 19th century Scottish preacher. Uh, he was affectionately known as Rabbi Duncan because of his knowledge of, of Hebrew. And, and one time, Rabbi Duncan was leading a communion service and he noticed an elderly woman uh, take the cup and then pass it on without partaking. And now he was somewhat of an eccentric pastor, not that we know anybody like that. Um, But this is what he did. He went down the line, he took the cup out of the hands of one of the elders, and he walked over to the woman, and he said, take it, woman, take it. It's for sinners. And that's what Jesus That's what Paul is doing here in making his appeal to the Jews in the synagogue before him. He's saying, take this Jesus. Take him. He's for sinners. Notice how it is that he's for sinners. Verse 39. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you would not be freed under the law of Moses. It's maybe one of my favorite statements in the book of Acts. word that Paul uses for freedom here is the same word the New Testament typically uses for justification. So the NIV renders this, Everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. What a statement. The gospel is the only answer for guilt. It deals with every sin and offers freedom. There's no alternative way to be made right with God. In Jesus, there is accomplished a salvation available nowhere else. The law cannot justify us. It only serves to highlight our sin, to frustrate our failure. Rituals and tradition and family religion provide no hope before God. Money and sex and thrills are not your salvation. The approval and praise of people will not fulfill you. Self-injury or indulgence cannot cover the shame, deception, or hiding behind an invented persona will not rescue you. But everyone who believes in Him is freed. Freed from everything. What have you done in this life? 
What are you ashamed of? How have you failed? Bury it in the grace of God. Drown it beneath His mercy. That's Paul's invitation here. Now why is this justification available? Well, as Paul says, it's because of this man. The man, Christ Jesus. It's because He lived a perfect life in history. It's because He succeeded where Adam failed. It's because for 30 plus years he was an absolute delight to his father as again and again he submitted to his will and every day he was depositing righteousness to be transferred into your moral bank account. This is why the Jesus of history matters. His personal history replaces yours. Before God. So that when the Father looks at you. What he sees. Are not all the wrong things that you have done. But all the right things that Jesus has done. And he rewards you for them. It's what it means to be justified. The Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia was founded by a man named J. Gresham Machen. He was a professor at Princeton during a time when people were maintaining the, the language and the traditions of Christianity, but, but they were denying that they referred to any objective events, to any truth. They were saying things like, sure, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, for certainly what Jesus desired to do in this world lives on in us. Or they would say things like, yeah, we, we believe in the deity of Christ. Since what does it mean to be divine than to love your neighbor? And, and, and so on. They were taking the symbols of Christianity, but unhitching them from the historical realities that they represented. And what Machen contended is that what you've done is not just adjusted Christianity, but you've invented, you've created an entirely different religion altogether. He pointed out the, the word itself, gospel, means good news. It's an announcement, a, a report of something that happened in history. Machen died young at the age of 55. And his last recorded words were a telegram he managed to send to his friend John Murray from the hospital. And it read, I'm so grateful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. The active obedience of Jesus is a reference to the righteous life that he lived on earth. Life he lived in our place. And he is saying there is no hope without the Jesus of history. It's what he contended for. Jesus' history replaces your history... Everything is hidden by Him. Every regret, every stain, every weakness, every hurt, every time you wish you could turn back the clock and redo what you've just done, Jesus has done it for you. Let's boast in this.
Let's be affected by this. A Christian writer named Robert Farrar Capon went to be with the Lord just this past week. And I love the way that he described the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. It had at its heart the doctrine of justification by faith. This is how he described it. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. Bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Now the alcoholic metaphor might make some of us a tad bit uncomfortable, but it's intended to communicate something of the extravagance of grace. And we hear this extravagance in Paul's voice. Everyone who believes in Him is freed from everything from which you could not be freed otherwise. Justified with a justification available nowhere else. Totally unique and absolutely powerful. It's what this Jesus does. You believe in Him? Are you trusting Him today? There's no hope without Him. Complete freedom is available. You live in free. Free from fear. Free from anxiety. Free from the mind games. Free from burden. Embrace Him. He's for sinners like you and me. Amen. Stand up, respond to that message and song. I will glory in my Redeemer Whose priceless blood has ransomed me Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails And hung Him on that judgment tree I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death my only savior before the holy judge the lamb who is my righteousness yes. the lamb who is my
it's for another. I'm satisfied in heaven. I will glory. I will glory in my Redeemer, His faithfulness, my standing place. The foes are mighty and rush upon me. My feet are firm held by, yes they are. My feet are firm held by His grace. I will glory in my Redeemer. Who carries me on eagle's wings? He crowns my life with loving kindness. His triumph song I'll ever sing. I will glory in my Redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold. And when He calls me, it will be paradise His face forever to behold 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 we long for that day when we yeah. behold your face. Lord, and we will know no more corruption, no more death. Or the sting of the anticipation of death will be no more. We'll know no sickness, God. We will be with you. The Jesus of history. Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, may the anticipation of that day Keep us moving forward in this day. For your glory, God, we pray. Amen.